Most people have a sense that there's something stopping them living the life they were designed to live. Some people identify it as lack of money. If only they had financial freedom, or at least were a bit more comfortable, then life would be the way it was meant to be. For others, they think it's their spouse that is stopping them living the life they were designed to live. And so they abandon one marriage and try again, and maybe again and again. Uh, For many people, it's their job that they think is stopping them living the life they were designed to live. If only they could swap that work environment for a different one, they'd be on the path to happiness. Uh, For still others, it's where they live. If only they lived somewhere where there were more opportunities or better weather, life would be very different. Well, the Bible agrees that there is something stopping us living the life we were designed to live. But that something isn't our circumstances. It's not the people around us. It is our sin. The blessings pronounced here in verses 1 and 2 take us back to the Garden of Eden, uh, to a world before sin. When verse 2 says, blessed it is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. The, the word man is, is the same word in the Old Testament as Adam. It's the most basic word for human beings. It reminds us of our original creation. It reminds us of our original purpose, which was to know God and to be like him. And the blessed man, woman, boy or girl is the one who, like Adam and Eve in the beginning, uh, who's, who's like them, against whom the Lord counts no iniquity and in whose spirit is no deceit. Uh, This blessing points us backwards, but it also points us forwards. Forwards to life in the new heavens and the new earth where uh, sin will no longer be an ongoing struggle. Uh, For someone in this life not to struggle against sin is to be under God's curse because they've, they've given up the fight. They haven't started the fight, but in heaven not to struggle against sin will be under, to be under God's blessing because that struggle will be over. So this is a blessing that points us backwards, it points us forwards, but the person this psalm describes is blessed even now. Blessed even now. And my aim tonight with the Spirit's help is that we would leave here with a greater sense of how blessed we are than what we came in with. Because we know in our heads that true blessing is to have your sins forgiven. But it can be easy to start thinking that true blessing is found elsewhere. This past Thursday uh, was known as Thursday in Scotland. In America it was known as Thanksgiving. Uh, Many Americans post pictures of their family on, on social media and say things like, Happy Thanksgiving from our family to yours. But think of the American Christian who doesn't have a family or who doesn't talk to their family and they see all the pictures of smiling faces and uh, the temptation would be to think if only I could have what they had. And there's a real temptation for them to start thinking that real blessing lies in having a happy family. But tonight I want to remind us where real blessing truly does lie. 
or uh, with coming up to Christmas with, with Black Friday uh, coming first and then the January seals coming after. Uh, there can be a real temptation to think that happiness, uh, the true blessing is found in having stuff. But tonight I, I want to so acquaint us with our privileges that those things start to lose their shine. Uh, boys and girls, maybe you can start to, to think uh, that presents are the most important thing and that, that if you have presents, uh, that's all that matters. But, but God wants to tell us no. Or perhaps we just long for the, the blessing of a quiet life, uh, a life without drama, without hassle. And no matter how hard we try, there's always another thing and that quiet, settled life always just seems out of reach. Well, tonight I want to remind you of the blessing that is yours, even in the midst of the drama, even in the midst of the hassle, even in the midst of the pain or the illness. So that's the goal tonight, uh, to remind ourselves where, where true blessing is found. And we want to look at the psalm under three headings, seeing firstly the misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. The misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. When it comes to Psalm 51, we're specifically told that David wrote it after committing adultery with Bathsheba, uh, when the prophet Nathan came to him and showed him his sin. It is a prayer of confession. It's a prayer for mercy. We're not told the setting for Psalm 32, uh, but it's widely believed that David also wrote it in the aftermath of his sin. Uh, but not the immediate aftermath of him being confronted with, with that sin and confessing his sin, but later on as he looked back on it all. Uh, one of the, the main reasons people think that is because in verse 3, David says, When I kept silent. That is a silence when there should have been confession, a silence when he should have been speaking and confessing his sin to God. Uh, but the confession itself doesn't happen uh, until verse 5. So that's what I mean by the misery of guilt. I mean the, the misery of uh, the time when David had sinned, when God's hand was heavy on him, but he didn't repent or acknowledge his sin. The misery of guilt. Perhaps you remember that as an unbeliever. You felt something weighing heavily on you, which you began to realise was guilt. In the words of verse 4, it was as if your strength had been dried up by the heat of summer. And at the start you didn't know what it was, but, but then you came to see what it was. Uh, guilt because of your sin against God. And then you confessed your sin and came to know the joy of forgiveness. David is writing here as a believer who has sinned. But the experience of conviction of sin is something that both believers and unbelievers know about. Now if, if you were to ask the average unbeliever, do you feel convicted because of your sins? They'd probably say... What sins? And yet people are walking around with a sense of guilt, or, or at least shame, uh, even if they don't know what it is. 
About a hundred years ago, a German novelist called Franz Kafka wrote a book called The Trial. It's about a man who gets arrested. But the whole novel is about the fact that he never finds out what he's done wrong. And as the story goes on, he starts to, to rethink his life, wondering what it was that he'd done. But we get to the end of the book and we never find out what it is that he's done. What's the point of the story? Well, Kafka wrote in his diary, The state in which we find ourselves today is sinful, independent of guilt. Sinful, independent of guilt. In other words, modern people are sinful without the feeling of guilt. And they have an uneasy sense that something isn't right. But they're not told what it is because they're told by society that the bad things they do are good and natural. And so often they don't feel the guilt, but they still wonder why something isn't right. Perhaps they go to a counsellor about it, but they're not going to be told that their fundamental problem is that they're sinning against God and suppressing the truth of his existence. And actually, never mind not being told that in, in counselling. Perhaps they go to church and they still don't hear about their guilt. They're still not told that they're sinners. Perhaps because people don't want to offend them. Perhaps because they go to a church where the people there don't believe that they're sinners either. That might seem the nice thing to do. Let's, let's not, not tell them. But where does it leave people? It leaves him in verses 3 and 4 here. It leaves him in verse 3, wasting away. It leaves him in verse 4, with God's hand being heavy on them. But they don't realise what it is. And they never experience the sheer relief of the rest of the psalm, of having their sin dealt with. So the, the misery of guilt is God so pressing down on our lives uh, that we know that something is not right and the the mercy of misery is a god won't uh, just leave us to to go on as if everything is normal to have sinned against god and not to know his hand pressing down on us that that would not be mercy that would be judgment So what about you? Is there something you need to talk to God about? Something you need to confess to him? Perhaps to confess to another person as well? David cannot have been ignorant of his guilt. Unlike the unbeliever, he knew very clearly what God's law said. But he was going about life as if he hadn't committed adultery and then murder. Now is scary and it's scarily possible but God in his mercy even before he sent the prophet Nathan to him God in his mercy is showing David that everything's not okay by this burden that he feels perhaps that's you tonight and you've had a growing sense that something is not right well don't try and ignore it any longer because even your sense of uneasiness is God's mercy to you. 
even your sense of uneasiness is God's mercy to you. So firstly tonight, the misery of guilt and the mercy of misery. Then secondly, the reality of sin and the joy of forgiveness. The reality of sin and the joy of forgiveness. What is it that David becomes aware of? What is it that stops us from being the people we were designed to be? Well, in this psalm we have three different words for sin and it's worth pausing and looking at the light they shed on our inner darkness. The first word is in verse 1, transgression. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven. And transgression is another word for rebellion. The book of 2 Kings, uh, which we were in uh, the last few weeks, 2 Kings tells us that after the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. And the word rebelled there is the same word as the word transgressed here. Uh, Boys and girls, you may not know what the word transgression means, but if if someone says of a king, I want to fight against this king, I don't want this king to be king over me, that is transgression. It speaks of, of an action that springs from an attitude. An attitude which says of Jesus, we will not have this man to reign over us. An attitude which looks at the king of kings and says, not my king. Transgression is rebellion. It's a hard attitude as much as an action. The next word that sheds light on our darkness is the word sin itself. Uh, The word has the idea of missing the mark. In the book of Judges we read about 700 left-handed men, every one of whom could sling a stone at a hair and not miss. And that word for miss there is the same as the word for sin here. Uh, Boys and girls, do you have a bow and arrow at home? Uh, Do you know what it is to aim at the target, but you miss the target? Well, that's a picture of sin. We don't hit the target God has set for us. We don't hit the target that God has designed us to hit. Or think of a a rugby team that has a last-minute penalty. It's the last kick of the game. The team are are two points behind, but if they score the penalty, they'll win. Their penalty taker comes up, he kicks the ball towards the posts, but it falls short. And actually, no matter how many times he'll kick it, it will always fall short. For we all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We were created to live a certain way. We were created uh, to flourish. We have God's standards built into us. We have the work of the law written on our hearts. Uh, As God's people, we have his righteous requirement. But we consistently fall short. The third word that sheds light on our darkness is the word iniquity. Blessed is a man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity. Uh, That is the sense of being bent or twisted or made crooked. It's to take what God has made and to twist it. 
And that's what the devil does. The devil can't create anything. Uh, he can only twist and pervert what God has made. And a final word uh, which follows on is deceit at the end of verse 2. That's what we do by nature when our darkness is exposed. Like the the woodlice running away uh, when you you turn over the log. Uh, When our rebellion, our missing the mark, our our twisting is shown for what it is. We, We want to hide, we want to cover it, we want to make excuses this is the human problem and this is our problem and so we need to see the treason of sin the the mark missing of sin the twistedness of sin the deceitfulness of sin and not just sin in general but personally you must see that your sin is revolt against the only true king that it's continually missing the mark of what he requires And that it's not just what you do, but who you are by nature. It's having a a twisted, perverse uh, bent to us that excels in covering up the cancer. And we need to see that or we won't come to Jesus in the first place. And even as Christians, we won't see sin as that big of a deal. Uh, And we won't... uh, experience the joy of what forgiveness is i wonder whether some of us have lost a sense of the relief that forgiveness brings there's a story that a prison warden used to tell one day he was or one day the prison warden had a friend who was on a train and this man noticed that the man beside him seemed very miserable and the man told him that he had just been released from prison. His life had brought shame to his family. He had lost almost all contact with them. He hadn't received any letters from them for years. And so just before he left prison, he came up with a plan to try and find out how they felt. He wrote a letter home telling them uh, that he would be on the train that passed their small family farm. And that if they could forgive him, they were to hang a white ribbon on the old apple tree near the tracks. If it wasn't hanging there when the train went past, he would never bother them again. Well, as he's on the train and as the scenery out the window becomes more and more familiar, he can't bear it. He can't bear the suspense. So he swaps seats with the man he's just met and he asks the man to tell him what he sees. When the tree comes in sight, the man's eyes fill with tears and he turns to his new friend and he says, It's all right, the whole tree is white with ribbons. And that overwhelming sense of relief running through your whole body is just a small illustration of the relief we should feel to know that our sins are forgiven. But just before we leave this second point, notice that the sense of forgiveness only comes when he stops covering up his sin. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you and I did not cover my iniquity. 
That word cover is also used in verse 1 where we're told blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And those two different uses of the word cover are telling us that the only way our sins can be truly covered is if we stop covering them up. The only way our sins can be truly covered is if we stop covering them up. Maybe you're getting a new floor in your house, a new carpet or a wooden floor or whatever. Well, in order for the the new floor uh, to be a proper covering, the old floor needs to be lifted. Whatever is on the floor at the minute needs to be lifted. Anything underneath it has to be exposed and taken away. For the new floor to go down, you need to expose what's already there and remove it. And in the same way, the only way for our sin to be covered is if we refuse to cover it up ourselves, if we stop covering it up, if we confess it, and if we ask God instead to cover us with the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ. So the reality of sin and the joy of forgiveness. Thirdly and finally, the lessons of experience and the call to joy. The lessons of experience and the call to joy. There are lessons that we're meant to learn from David's experience of guilt, his confession, his forgiveness. We see that in verse 6 where he says, Therefore, therefore let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. We also have instruction in verse 8. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. Uh, There's a bit of a debate as to whether the speaker in verse 8 suddenly changes from from David to God uh, and then back to David in verse 10. But either way, it doesn't affect things too much because who is David? Well, he's God's king. And so if David is still the one speaking in verse 8, he's he's speaking as God's anointed king. Uh, And behind his words, we should hear the voice of our Saviour. So what are the lessons that our Saviour wants us to learn? Verse 6, Firstly, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found. Surely in the context of the psalm, it's speaking about prayers of confession. David confessed his sin before it was too late, but the window of opportunity was closing. As it is for all of us if we're living with unconfessed sin. To say let everyone offer prayer to you at a time when you may be found, surely implies that a time is coming when he will not be found that time will not last forever. Uh, it's either pray to God now, speak to him and confess sins now, or call out to the mountains and the rocks to come and cover us and fall upon us on the day of judgment. Today is the day of salvation. We've already seen the misery of bottling it up. In verse 3, when David is silent towards God, he ends up groaning all day long. So when he didn't cry out loud to God, he still cried out loud, but he cried out loud in misery. 
So it is either one or the other. It's either cry out loud to God in confession or cry out loud in misery. But if we do cry out loud to God, if we do confess our sins, then we will be eternally safe. Eternally safe. The second half of verse 6 tells us that the great waters won't reach him. Uh, Speaking of reaching the godly one. Uh, This theme is developed in verse 7. You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. To hide in him and to be eternally safe. The second piece of instruction comes in verse 8. Stubbornly refusing to confess sin. Stubbornly refusing to come to the light. is to be like a horse or mule or donkey without understanding. God wants us to respond when he calls to us. I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. What is our response to be? Our response is to listen. God doesn't want us to be like animals He doesn't want us to be like horses or donkeys which will only do what you want them to do when they have bit and bridle attached to them. Do you know what what a bit is, boys and girls? It's that little piece of metal that goes in a horse's mouth and is attached onto the reins. And uh, whenever you want the horse to do something, you pull on the reins and the horse can feel that little piece of metal pushing against its mouth. And so they they do what you want them to do, but only because they've got a piece of metal in their mouth. God doesn't want us to be like that. He wants us to listen to his teaching because it's for our good. It's for our good. The illustration came to mind of parents uh, keeping dishwasher tablets away from a baby and maybe a toddler but they want that baby or toddler to get to the point where they could reach the dishwasher tablets if they wanted to but they're not going to eat them because they know it wouldn't be good for them and instead they can reach in and take them and and put them in the dishwasher and, and use them for the purpose that they're intended for so God doesn't want to keep stuff on the, the high shelf from us forever. He wants us uh, to be able to use what he gives us for their intended purpose. Then in verse 10, we have a reminder that we need to hear. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Now there are parts of the Bible which say the opposite, where the the writers complain that the wicked prosper, that the wicked don't have any sorrows, and that it's the righteous who are suffering. But if you zoom out and look at the bigger picture, then you have to say that truly the wicked are those who have many sorrows. In fact, it doesn't say that God's people don't have sorrows. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but... Steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Not many sorrows, are, many sorrows have the wicked, but everything will go well for the one who trusts in the Lord. But many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds those who trust in the Lord. And just as we close tonight, there's a final piece of instruction that we're to learn from this psalm. 
uh, which ho- hopefully has been obvious, but just to, to spell it out, to make it clear, how were people saved in the Old Testament? Was it by works or was it by grace? How could David's sin be forgiven here? Was it because he went and, and killed an animal? Well, surely it's only because of Jesus. In fact, in the New Testament, when the Apostle Paul wants to prove justification by faith in the the great exposition of the gospel in the book of Romans, when Paul wants to prove that we are justified, that we are declared righteous by faith and not by works, he goes to Abraham and then he goes to David. And he quotes this psalm. He says, Just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Then he quotes verses 1 and 2. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. According to verse 1 of the psalm, we need two things. We need forgiveness and we need covering. We need our transgression forgiven. We need our sin covered. Where can we get those two things? Only at the cross, where our sins are forgiven and we are covered instead with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. The thing that's stopping us live life as we were designed to live it, it's not our circumstances, it is our sin. And so true blessing is not to change our circumstances, but to have our sin dealt with. And if we have experienced that tonight, by God's grace, may we respond by being glad, rejoicing and shouting for joy. Amen. Well, let's sing the the second half of this psalm as we close. Psalm 32, verses 7 to the end on page 60. Uh, The tune will be St. Andrew 137. Psalm 32, uh, 7 to the end, uh, particularly talking of God's uh, instruction for us and preservation of us. So Psalm 32, 7 to the end, we'll stand and sing praise.